Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I feature Oscar Yeho. Oscar is an artist and writer based in Brooklyn, New York. He was born and raised in Liverpool, England. He received his BA from Columbia University in New York and also studied at the Sorbonne Art School. In 2022, he had a solo exhibition titled East of Sun, West of Moon at the Brooklyn Museum. He has exhibited across the globe at the James Wentis Gallery in New York, New York Historical Society, the Asia Society, Royal Academy, and several others. His work is included in several collections, including the Brooklyn Museum, Columbus Museum of Art, ICA Miami, and the New York Historical Society, to name only a few. Please see his expanded bio at cerebralwomen.com and enjoy this episode featuring Oscar Yeho. Oscar, welcome to my podcast. I am really looking forward to our discussion. It's a pleasure to be here. When did you discover your interest in being an artist? It wasn't really discovery, more in the sense that it was always there. I'm sure a lot of um, guests answer similarly. Um, I was just always drawing, uh, always making art. You know, it was always a part of me. Do you recall ever being influenced by a particular body of work or artist? Yes, really formative was this uh, Francis Bacon show at the Tate's Liverpool. I think it was a it was a two person show with Francis Bacon and Maria Lasnig, and the show's old rooms. That was back in twenty sixteen, so I must have been around seventeen, I think, at the time. And yeah, I remember being just so blown away at the way Bacon kind of is able to construct these um, spaces within his work. Um, and that really influenced my practice. I think that was the first time in which I had, as a kid, you know, seen an art show and been like, wow, like this is amazing. Very influential. And I, I still, Francis Bacon is an artist who I still look up to now, but that show was particularly formative for me. How would you define your practice? My practice is primarily painting, I guess. Um, but writing is also a big part of it and drawing as well. I think my practice is just, um, the art I make, it's a very um, circuitous answer, but my practice is simply what I'm, what I'm doing right now. Share with us what your studio's like, like, what it feels like, what it looks like, and how do you feel being there working? My studio right now is in Gowanus. I have these four huge windows. I get a lot of indirect bright light. Right now, I see cars passing the Gowanus Expressway. I can kind of see the Statue of Liberty. I can see the World Trade Centers. I can see 
the construction of that really tall, dark uh, tower in downtown Brooklyn. I have really nice wood floors. I have a cute monstera plant. I have a lot of reference images hung up on my wall. I've had a few artist friends come in that they've always been kind of taken aback a little by my studio because I think it's very like, there's a lot of furniture, a lot of seating. I think half of it feels very much like an office. There's a lot of desks and a lot of books. And the other half is very kind of messy and, and more kind of traditional parts of studio. It's very nice being here. I've, today especially is a very lovely day. I have both windows open. It's nice. I'm imagining it. So you have all those views and lots of light. Mm-hmm. It's very important. And your ceiling height? My ceiling height is, I don't actually know. It's actually kind of sloped. I think this floor used to be the top floor, but then they constructed something above it. Maybe like uh, 11 feet tall. How did your professors impact how your practice has evolved? I think what I really benefited from was, so I, I went to Columbia University undergrad. So I went to Columbia College uh, where I graduated in 2021. I don't have a BFA, I have a BA. You know, although I majored in visual arts, I would say generally studied liberal arts. That's in a quarter of my overall course load were actual studio art classes. So beyond art professors, you know, professors and humanities really influenced my practice. Took a really like, great class with Elizabeth Pavanelli, Jonathan Bella. I did a media studies class with him and that was really influential. So it wasn't just art professors who impacted my practice. But I guess if we were to talk about art professors, I would say that I tried taking like the most freeform, liberal studio art classes where I could do whatever I wanted. Classes in which, you know, I had set assignments to do, I would be, I would get very creative with them and essentially just do what I wanted to do and try and mold it into the assignment. So I, I'm thankful for those professors for allowing me to kind of bend the rules a little. Because I think they could tell that I knew what I was doing and knew what I wanted to do. Are there concepts or thoughts that connect your work? Yes, I think I would say that I use identity as a starting off point to explore questions of uh, nationalism or critique of nationalism. So a lot of my work actually functioned as a kind of critique of um, American nationalism and kind of American myth. That's why I incorporate a lot of cowboy imagery, for example. A lot of my work is about kind of comes from a queer perspective, and I mean that in the sense that it is the alternative view of gender, femininity, and masculinity, and especially how that interplays with race. So it's all it's a big kind of like amalgam of all these different things that I'm interested in. This concept of art created by those from the Asian diaspora. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that when people view your work or read your name? that they have certain expectations or that they feel they can define the work in a particular way? Yes, 100%. I am very um, cognizant of the ways in which identity or minoritarian identity holds a particular currency within the art market today, especially when it's figuration. This is something that I've kind of written about and critiqued a lot uh, in the book that I published with James Quintus Press. That essentially the, what I found is that, and this is across all spheres of culture actually in society is that, at least in liberal societies, is that the identity of 
me as an artist or any artist becomes a thing that holds the most currency and not the actual artwork itself. So, you know, I think there might be an artist who holds a particular minoritarian identity, but the artwork they make isn't necessarily kind of um, pushing anything forward or it's not necessarily, how do I put this? Um, essentially, the artist identity becomes a more prominent signifier of worth and value than the actual artwork itself or the concept of the artwork itself. So there's certainly a kind of expectation placed on me and a lot of my peers as well to be producing particular work in a legible way that is easily digestible within kind of liberal, multiculturalist um, identity politics consensus uh, nowadays. And so, you know, we always try and push and pull against it. It's kind of a complicated situation because I of I benefited a lot from it. So, for example, you know, with the rise of anti-Asian hate, kind of the oppression of um, Asian Americans hit the spotlight for a few years. And I think that affected the art market as well, which is good and also bad. So I have a very kind of ambivalent, contradictory relationship to those kind of pressures and expectations of me and my peers. With that in mind, are you able to create work without considering who the audience is? I mean, do you think of your audience at all? Yes, I always think of my audience. For me, at least, well, I personally don't want to be a kind of, like, you know, artist locked away in, like, a ivory tower painting work just for themselves. I'm a very socially situated and socially oriented artist. You know, I care about people. I want my work to be seen by people. And so, obviously, I'm always going to be considering what the people, um, you know, discourse and audience uh, whenever I make a work. That's not to say that I'm always going to kind of cater to that or bow down to the expectation. And I think it's good to kind of push audiences a little and push the viewer a little. But certainly I'm always thinking of how it can be seen. Do you listen to music while you're working? Constantly. I listen to a lot of um, internet radio, kind of online radio station called NTS. Now they're based in London. I listen to a lot of a big variety. I listen to a lot of jazz, house, techno. I love dance music. It helps me after 6 p.m. Listening to dance music is really great because it keeps me awake and energized. Listen to R&B, pop. It's just, just a huge variety. And I'm always singing as well <laughs> in the studio. So w when do the titles of the work enter the creative process? Sometimes it's before, sometimes it's after. Sometimes I'll have a title and then kind of conjure up an image or painting based off that title. Other times I'll be working without a set title in mind, and then the title will come after. Have you ever thought about what other career path you would have chosen if you weren't an artist? It, it depends which stage of my life we're talking about. So in high school, uh, in Britain, the kind of high school academic structure is that between the age of 16 to 18, you take three to four A-levels, you very much narrow down on specific subjects. And my A-levels were maths, further maths, physics, and art. So I was very much like um, like a STEM science math guy, although I really loved physics. So I think maybe if I was like 16, 17, if I, didn't, if I hadn't gone into art and I didn't have any if I wasn't like a adolescent existentialist, I probably would have gone into like a STEM path or something. If I was 18 and picking what to do, if I didn't go to art, I probably would have 
probably maybe architecture or something. And then if we're talking about college, I probably would have, if I hadn't done art during college or after college, I probably would have gone into academia. I probably would have gone to master's or PhD in visual studies, uh, queer theory. Um, yeah, I got really into kind of academia in college. When do you know work is finished? I know a work is finished when it's similar to when you know, like a dish is has enough salt. If you keep adding to it, or if it's like well seasoned enough, you keep adding seasoning, it's not going to do anything, and actually will be detrimental. So it's a very similar kind of concept. It's just you kind of just know you taste it. So in an artworks context, you would look at it, and if you know that adding something isn't really going to do anything else, then you know. How do you keep learning? You keep learning by being out in the world and reading a lot. You know, books, of course, but, you know, reading up about new artists, uh, essays, articles, going to museums, um, all this stuff. I think, at least in New York, I'm like, I'm constantly learning. I never want to stop. I think when I stop learning is probably when it's time to die. What are the most substantial challenges that you've encountered as an artist? The challenges that I've faced, I'm, I'm very lucky and fortunate to be a professional working artist. Pretty much my last year of college, financially, I was doing well uh, straight out of college. My main kind of challenge, I guess, was I think in a way, my age, I'm 24, I was, I was 23 when I found out I got the Book Museum show. And so the show opened. The week after I turned 24. And I think the art world has a very kind of um, bivalent relationship to youth. It's at once kind of fetishized, but it's also kind of patronized and condescended. So I often get the sense that due to my age, I um, this perception I have was like not being taken as seriously as someone that um, maybe older. But I think when people actually meet me, then they kind of do take me seriously. So yeah, it's something that maybe I'm just kind of internalizing. Suddenly the age thing. I'm, I'm very much used to being the youngest person in the room. You know, I'm sure as I grow older, I'm probably 25 at this point. That won't be the case anymore. But yeah, I have a very kind of ambivalent relationship to age and youth uh, as well. So that's kind of been a challenge. What are you excited about right now? I am excited about... I'm excited about summer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely need... I need summer. I mean, yeah, that's, that's what I need. That's what I want. That's what I desire. Yeah, summer. When you're in the process of choosing colors, what experience is that? There are certain colors which I love to use and I always kind of use. One is a uh, cadmium red light. That's a kind of orangey red. To me, it's red, but I think people often perceive it as orange. And I use that in my works. I kind of begin each painting with a um, cadmium red drawing that I do with a paintbrush and gouache. And I often expose that drawing through the paint, so through the layers, so you can often see it. In the end result, I love using blue. It's a kind of electric blue. It's like a mix between cobalt and ultramarine. But besides that, it can be pretty challenging actually when you, especially with my earlier works, when I'm using a lot of color, 
it would the amount of time taken between each kind of action or each stroke each gesture as the patient progresses gets a lot lot um more that is to say that you know i might be waiting like five minutes between applying a color towards the later end of the painting because there's so many more kind of relationships you have to deal with aesthetic relationships com compositional relationships and color relationships that you have to kind of deal with nowadays i'm kind of trying to use less color be more sparse and uh, intentional with it but it's always kind of a challenge and oftentimes i'll look at the paintings i look at a lot of van gogh's paintings and try and mimic or kind of appropriate the color relationship that he uses uh, in my works so i often look at other kind of paintings and images to help especially towards a later stage of a painting when um, there's a lot more at, at stake it feels. what do you feel is the purpose of art i think that's a question would be because art already exists right art has existed for those since you know the dawn of man it's a part of who we are as humans so for me whenever i ask that question i can spin it and rather than what's the purpose of art I think we should ask ourselves, what could art do? What could art do more? What should art be doing? So we have to give it a kind of purpose in that sense. You know, if you look at kind of Neolithic cave people, they were, they were doing it because they wanted to do it, because they wanted to record their lives, because they wanted to express themselves. And the same principle kind of applies today. It's kind of, you know, why do, why we, <laughs> Not to get too existentialist, but you know, why do we exist? It doesn't really matter. We already exist. Why does all exist? It doesn't really matter. It already exists. It's all about how can we do things better? How can we, what should art strive to be? You know, and the same, and the same question, the same vein as, you know, what can humans strive to be? What can humanity strive to do to better, you know, the world? What can art do better? to um, impact or affect or improve the world. I really appreciated our conversation. And this is going to be our last question. And that is, how do you want to impact the world through your art? That's a really good question. I think I would like to um, impact people in whatever way that is. People are impacted by everything they see. Objects, buildings, pieces of music. We're moved by everything. You know, everything kind of exerts a pull or force on us. You know, obviously some more than others. I'm not as impacted by the bagel I had this morning as like listening to or watching a really good movie, for example. But they both kind of impact me in some way. So what I'm, what I'm doing is, you know, I'm producing objects or images. I'm producing visual culture, essentially. I'm a cultural worker. So I guess impacting culture and you know, that impacts people. That's what I strive to do. I love that term, cultural worker. Well, thank you for your work. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you. I'm, uh, it's nice to meet you. Thanks, Phyllis. Likewise. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.